Chapter thirty one of Carpenter's Geographical Reader Asia by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Industrial Burma Rice. We are on the Irrawaddy River this morning. We have taken the steamer and are traveling northward through the interior of Burma. Our accommodations are good, and as we sit on the deck, we can see the rich lands on both sides of the river. We ride for miles through broad fields of rice. This is the great crop of the country. The people depend upon the rice crop, and they are prosperous, or the reverse as the rice grows well or ill. It brings in more money than anything else, the annual exports amounting to thousands of millions of pounds. Indeed, Burma sells enough rice every year to give every man, woman, and child upon earth all he could eat in one day and still leave hundreds of millions of pounds. The valley of the Irrawaddy is largely made up of rice lands. We see men here and there plowing. They drive water buffaloes through the mud, turning the soil with plows of wood. In some places the plows hardly scratch the soil, and in others the children are driving buffaloes and oxen over the wetlands, which are thus broken up by their hoofs. A little later logs and brush will be dragged over the ground to smooth it. In other places the farming is more carefully done, for the British are teaching the natives how to get more out of their lands. In growing rice, the seed is sown broadcast, or in nurseries from which the young plants are afterwards taken and set out in regular rows. This is done by the women and children, the lazy men usually sitting on the edge of the fields and watching them work. The transplanting takes place about a month after sowing at which time the plants have grown a foot high. They are now pulled up and carried on poles, in bundles of about a thousand each, to the fields. The women make a hole in the earth with their fingers, and thrust down a tuft of three or four plants in it, and then squeeze the earth tight around it. These tufts are set about a foot apart, and there are about forty-five thousand of them to one acre. The rice crop must have plenty of water. In some parts of the country the rains are sufficient, but in others the lands are irrigated, the fields being flooded from time to time. As the grain matures, the water is taken off. The rice soon turns from green to yellow, and each field looks not unlike one of ripe wheat or oats. The rice is harvested with sickles, but little more than the heads being cut off. It is partially threshed by laying it on a hard piece of ground and driving bullocks over it. After that, it is taken to the rivers and shipped to Rangoon or other ports from where it is sent to all parts of the world. A grain of rice when it leaves the farmer is much like a grain of wheat with the husk on. This husk must be taken off before the rice can be used, and Burma has great steam mills for this purpose, which employ thousands of men. They are not unlike the huge flouring mills of America. Suppose we visit one of the mills and see how rice cleaning is done. There are some very large ones on the edge of Rangoon. The grain comes down in boats and is carried in baskets on the backs and shoulders of girls up to the mills. Here it is passed through one pair of millstones after another. Each pair tears off a bit of the husk until at last we have the white grains which we use for eating. After the husk is removed, the rice must be smoothed up for the market. It is strange to think of polishing grain as we polish silver spoons, 
but that is what is done with rice the husked grains are thrown by machinery against rollers covered with sheepskin as soft as the inside of a kid glove they are brought into contact with these rollers again and again until they are as white as freshly slaked lime and perfectly smooth as we go on our way up the river we now and then pass small cotton plantations and here and there find the people rearing the silkworms from which come the beautiful silks so commonly worn by the burmese we stop at the oil fields which are now producing a great deal of petroleum and then make an excursion to the moguk valley about ninety miles from mandalay from whence come the most beautiful rubies known to the world a fine ruby is even more valuable than a diamond of the same weight it has been estimated that one of the color of pigeon's blood weighing five carats will sell for several times as much as a five-carat diamond and that the proportionate price of the ruby will increase with its size a ruby which weighed eleven carats was recently sold in london for thirty five thousand dollars whereas a diamond of that size would not bring more than one-fifth that amount rubies are found in a layer of gravel or sand which lies at some distance below the earth's surface the clay is dug away and the gravel is taken out and washed it is then picked over and the rubies are sorted according to their quality and size the best of the stones are sent to london where they are sold to jewelers from all parts of the world going back to the river we proceed northward to bamo a thriving city on the trade route to china we are now not far from the borders of that great country and we could by an easy trip make our way there the scenery on the upper part of the irrawaddy is noted for its magnificence the river is clear and deep and it winds between high cliffs covered with forests in the northern part of the country many strange men and women come down to our steamer they wear but little clothing although they are almost loaded with jewelry of brass and other metals among them are the shans kachins and chins some of them are quite savage and all are less civilized than the burmese a few of the tribes go almost naked and some worship spirits the shans have lighter complexions than the burmese and they are especially noted for their fine coats of tattooing they are muscular well formed and are about an inch taller they wear trousers and jackets and many have blue cotton headdresses the karens another large tribe some of whom are also found in lower burma are more like the chinese although they dress like the burmese they are tattooed and many of the men have the figure of the rising sun pricked in with red ink on the small of their backs many of the karens have been converted to christianity leaving bamo we sail back down the irrawaddy river to mandalay where was the capital of the country before the british conquered burma and changed the seat of government to rangoon mandalay now has about two hundred thousand inhabitants and it is still a place of considerable importance it has large bazaars and hundreds of pagodas in one of which is a bell which weighs ninety tons we spend some time shopping in the city and in making excursions out into the country nearby we do not stay long however we have discovered that farther india is a little world in itself and we long for the still stranger things we are to find in hindustan or east india proper therefore we return to rangoon where we find a ship about to go to calcutta 
we take passage and are soon far out on the Bay of Bengal. We steam for several days in a northwesterly direction and awake one morning to find ourselves in the muddy waters brought down by the Ganges. We sail through these into the Hooghly River, which forms one of the mouths of the Ganges, and after a few hours come to anchor under the spires and towers of the great city of Calcutta. End of chapter 31